you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. I made it up to the main point that I wanted to make in the first service and then had to stop. Um, so maybe we'll make it through all of them uh, this service. I've tried to trim and cut in between. Um, such, such a rich passage of Scripture. Um, but it's a big passage of Scripture. Genesis 6 through 9 looking at the flood, the story of Noah. It started like this. I recently read in a Time Magazine article um, these words. Time and again during the 18 harrowing years she allegedly spent in captivity, J.C. Lee Duggard must have had the chance to cry for help. She assisted her alleged abductor with his home business, sorting out orders by phone or email. She occasionally even greeted customers alone at the door. She even went out in public, but she apparently never made a run for it, returning each day instead to a shed in the backyard of the man who allegedly kidnapped and raped her. J.C. has strong feelings with this guy, her stepfather, who saw Duggar snatched at age 11 from a bus stop in 1991, said. She really feels like it's almost like a marriage. Then it said this, it said, baffling as it may be, Duggar's response to her years in captivity is hardly unusual. Explaining it precisely is impossible, but one of the most common theories is the so-called Stockholm Syndrome, the phenomenon in which victims display compassion and even loyalty to their captors. It was first widely recognized after the Swedish bank robbery that gave it its name. For six days in August 1973, uh, thieves held four Stockholm Bank employees hostage at gunpoint in a vault. And when the victims were released, the reaction shocked the world. They hugged and kissed their captors, declaring their loyalty even as the kidnappers were carted off to jail. Stockholm Syndrome. I think this passage in Genesis was written by Moses to address an entire generation that was struggling through their own version of a Stockholm Syndrome. The Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, uh, generations upon generations. All they knew was the lifestyle, the culture, the powerful influence of the Egyptian culture. Um, And Moses had to have sat there in his tent at night as they wandered around the desert and said, I've got to tell these people who they are. I've got to write this down. I've got to get this story out so that these people who are living still in light of their their, their slavery, their captivity, know who the God is that has saved them and brought them out of this. They know more who they were designed to be. And so he sits down and he writes the words that we read in Genesis where he tells them, look, this is your God, the one who's created you. This is what he's designed you for. This is how you fell from that design. And then we read the words um, shortly after that that we're going to read this morning in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. 
Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with the rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. Instead of the door of the ark and the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Let me pray for us. God, will you open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word this morning. Spirit, would you be in the preaching and the hearing of your word uh, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Stockholm Syndrome. The Israelites, loyal to, wanting to go back to their captives in Egypt, um, should remind us of something bigger that we all experience. And that is captive, captivity and loyalty um, to the things of this world that the Bible calls sin. That's the, that's the, the picture this morning we want to get to. That's what the, this text addresses, is that we all live under a huge threat. But that God has given us a huge opportunity, and therefore we have a huge responsibility. Those are the three points we're going to look at. But first, let's get the story. How do we get here? Well, Adam and Eve... Early in uh, Genesis 3, are sent from the Garden of Eden because of their disobedience. So they have two sons, Cain and Abel. It's not long till Cain, in anger and jealousy, murders his brother and is cursed and is sent away. Just five generations later, one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, was taking multiple wives to himself and was singing and bragging about killing others for insignificant reasons. The world had quickly become a violent and miserable place. Noah, descended from Adam's other son, Seth, that was born after Abel was killed, and his descendants did call upon the, the, the name of the Lord in worship, but soon intermarried with the Canaanites and spiraled into sin and violence as well. And at the time of the flood, the Bible tells us that Noah was the only one to be found different. He was the only one to be righteous before the Lord. And even that, it tells us, was because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was in a state of grace. Noah was a middle-aged man, somewhere around 500 years old, when God came to him. God told him to build this vessel that is uh, one and a half football fields in length, about a quarter of a football field in width, and about 45 feet high. And he told him to build rooms or nests in it, because he was going to bring two of every kind of animal to him to take on board with he and his family to save them. Then when he's 600, a few years later, God tells him to get in. It is time. And there it says the rains and the floodwaters burst forth. The imagery of, of there is powerful. It's used to capture this, the intensity of the flood. Not, 
not only from the rains of above, but the floodwaters, it says, burst forth from below. It's the picture of, of wiping devastation as the waters uh, burst forth. And then the water, it says, prevails for 150 days, and, and everything dies. Then it takes another 150 days for the waters to slowly abate, and then 70 more days for the land to actually dry out while Noah sends out these different kinds of birds to check things out. So after being in the ark for 370 days, over a year with his family and all these animals, Noah and, and, and the animals and his family come out to find the same world, yet it's different. It's cleansed. It's, it's like new. It's a, it's a fresh start. And Noah worships. God reaffirms the covenant with the same categories that he had with Adam, but, but things have been expanded a little now. God now covenants with Noah not just as a man made in his image, but as a sinner in the need of God's saving grace. What do we learn from this passage? The first thing is this. Uh, like the ones who'd been kidnapped in the story that I read from the Time Magazine article, we are captives. We all live under this huge threat of sin. Sin affects, affects all of creation. There's no point that it doesn't touch. And that man, God's representative, who was put here to be God's steward, his representative, has, instead of filling the earth with God's glory, has filled it with violence. And sin requires God's judgment. Um, God's orderliness, his beauty, has been undone by the disobedience of man. And it breeds corruption. A sinful world comes not just in and of itself, but it comes from, from man. A sinful world comes from a sinful man. A sinful culture becomes from sinful people. See, here's the deal. Here's the threat of sin. This is why it's such a big deal. Because sin does not lie dormant. It's on the prowl. It desires to master over you and me. And we, on our part, rarely actually resist it. Um, it says it in Genesis 4 that sin desired to master over Cain, to rule over him, to control him. And it's the same thing today. Ask yourself this question. What, what do you have to do to ruin your family? What's required to obliterate the bonds that hold your home together? In our world, simply let nature take its course and sin will prevail and your family will be destroyed. Or what do you have to do to grow cold in your relationship with Jesus? What do you have to do to ruin your walk with Him? Scripture tells us you don't have to do anything. That sin seeks to master over you and if you don't consciously battle it, resist it, your walk with Christ will grow ice cold. This applies to us as individuals, as churches, as nation. The horror of sin's mastery becomes plain when you read this text. Did you catch what it said about God? It didn't say God was mildly displeased with His image. It says He was utterly grieved, broken-hearted. God actually regretted having made us. His images had so, so radically departed from their original state that He says they belonged on the trash heap. Let me try to to bring this home to you a little bit. When you think of your children, when I think of, of, of Nathan and, and Naomi and Jude, those that I've, I've cuddled in my arms, that I've rocked to sleep at night, uh, that I take care of when they cut their knees, can you imagine looking on them 
and saying, I'm sorry you were even made. You've become so evil that the only thing left for you is for you to be destroyed. It's, ima- it's, it's unimaginable. But God openly declares here that men and women that He had made in His likeness were so corrupt, so utterly defiled, that they had to be destroyed. To, to save themselves, to save humanity, they had to wipe them out. His images are so radically departed from the original state that He looks down and He sees them worshiping other images. And He says, no, I made you for a soul-satisfying trust relationship with me. He looks and he sees them killing and, and raping each other. And he says, no, I made you for nurture and love to protect each other. He looks at them and, and sees them using their, their creativity and their skill to then make weapons of war and violence. And he says, no, 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 I made you to cultivate creation in such a way that it screams of my glory and your enjoyment. What made God angry is that Man who was supposed to be to represent his image, to be stewards of righteousness, had taken and just been stewards of violence, of strife, of hatred and abuse. And that same sin still threatens to master us today. And we still deserve the judgment of God. In fact, the scriptures teach that another day of judgment is coming where God will cleanse this world again, not with water this time, but with fire, an even more powerful cleansing agent. We've become so much the opposite of our original design that we deserve to be destroyed, the Scriptures say. Thank goodness it doesn't end there. The second point and what we find in this passage is that God gives us a huge opportunity. God redeems in spite of sin. In the days of Noah, God strips down the human race of all its withered branches. He cuts us back to the stump of just one man and his family by sending the flood. And this judgment was severe, but just as with all of God's judgment, it was done with a positive end in mind. Through this radical judgment, God made it possible for the human race to actually thrive again, to have a new opportunity to to remake this world in, in, in His own image again. He gave us the opportunity to overcome the degradation of sin. The problem is, sin was in the heart of mankind. And Noah knew it. Sitting there on the ark, I probably wasn't a few days in until the animals and and all the, the stuff crammed there in the ark with his family. He knew the problem wasn't out there, but that it was in here, in our heart. And still, God says, I will preserve you. I will not give up on you. My gracious intent cannot be thwarted even by the, the huge threat of your sin. He gives us two opportunities, uh, two avenues for opportunity. One, we see in the rainbow. Um, we, we tend to, to, to put rainbows on, on kids' pictures and, and, and those kind of things, and it's nice and it's sweet. The image of a rainbow, of a bow in, in Scripture, almost always is a reflection of of a warrior's bow. And it's usually pictured with God holding it, pointing it in judgment upon some part of of, of sin and mankind. Um, So for God to say, listen, Noah, I'm I'm putting this bow up in the clouds, up in the skies, as a reminder for me and for you, for me to look at and to say, every time I look at it, I will remember the promise that I've made to you here to never destroy 
the world in judgment like this again. And whenever God remembers something like that, He's taking what's, what's promised in the past and He's bringing it to bear in the present. So whenever you see a rainbow, you can, you can think of God saying, listen, I'm going to remember my promise to you. You deserve punishment and judgment right now. But I've made a promise, and, and I'm going to be true to that, and I'm going to bring grace and mercy instead in this, this, this instance. But it's also for us. It's also for us to look at and, and, and to be pointed to Jesus. When God hung up that warrior's bow in, in the clouds, he pointed it away from where it's usually pointed, towards deserving mankind because of our sin. And now it's pointed towards him. As if he's saying, listen, from now on, I, I, you can't do it. I will take responsibility and the judgment that you deserve. And that is exactly what he did through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we could have his righteousness and be stewards again of that righteousness in the world in front of us. It's a huge opportunity we're, give, we're given through salvation. And then secondarily, he gives order to this world of, that had become a world of chaos. You read it in, in, in chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Noah built, built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings there on the altar. And you read on down, and, and this is what the Lord says. He says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have gone, done. And then he gives these categories. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is he doing there? He's creating order again out of a world that had become chaos because of sin and violence. And he's saying, listen, the, the, the world that, that, that you take sometimes as boring because there's so, re- so much regularity to it, it's actually an opportunity of stability for you then to take uh, this goodness, that my glory, to the ends of the earth. The predictability of life provides an opportunity for weak and failing images of God to rise out of the mire of self-destruction. It's an opportunity to overcome. We think things are a bore unless we're the ones that are, that are, not, uh, that are without them. Uh, we think our jobs are boring until we're without a job. We, we think, you know, changing diapers on a day-to-day basis is boring until we struggle with, with not having children. We think our, our health is, is, oh yeah, okay, I can take it for granted until we don't have our health. Then, when we don't have them, we see that these regular activities are actually opportunities that God has given us to build a life worth living. So He saved us from something but he saved us to something, which is even greater. It's a gracious gift, a gracious opportunity. And that leads to the third thing, that we must take up this huge responsibility. We must take up this huge responsibility and not squander it. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, and these words should sound familiar to you if you've read uh, any of, of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He reinstitutes the, the cultural mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve before sin had ever entered the world. He's recommissioning man in God's image to fill the earth, to steward it, to rule over it in such a way that we, we bring out the goodness that's there to, to, to give glory to God. God reaffirms his original design, telling us to, to, to multiply, to exercise dominion. 
The truth is, in American Christianity especially, um, many believers see Christianity as, as a way to kind of escape from this world, um, rather as a commission to be involved in it. We, we, we say things like, or at least think things like, let, let, let unbelievers take care of this world. It's corrupt. You know, just, just, we'll, just get us out of here. Get us to heaven. We, we'll have our hands full with just getting enough people on the lifeboats to get them to heaven. And evangelism is, is definitely our, our principle of interests and responsibilities. But God hasn't called us to emphasize saving souls so much that we desert other dimensions of this world. They can't be separated. Being fruitful and multiplying uh, is part of taking God's uh, word uh, in word and deed to the nations. We are salt and light, Scripture says. And when salt and light do not resist its influence, decay and darkness will run rampant in the world. So if you and I don't accept the responsibility that Noah and his sons were given here, then we leave the world to suffer more and more under the cruel master of sin. Sometimes I find myself becoming angry at the direction that the world is taking. You can look out and you see things and you get tired of being laughed at because of your faith or growing irritated with politicians using religion to get votes um, or... There's so many things that can be infuriating about the world as, it, as, as we see it. But the truth is, I think a lot of times our anger is misplaced. Because the truth is, if we remove ourselves from the world, then what, expect, what, what should we expect as far as influence goes? Instead of being angry at the world, we should be maybe upset with ourselves for letting things get this bad. See, the world has no solution, but God has called us to be the solution. He's given us the responsibility of influencing culture for Christ. Where are the Christian politicians? Where are the, the Christian playwrights? Where are the believers moving, moving into leadership roles in colleges and universities? Which followers of Christ will take the high ground in medicine and law and in business? Our generation cries out for this kind of guidance. And we've got to provide it. Where are such leaders? They're right here. Right here listening to this message. You, the scripture says, are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the one to take on this world as your project, as a steward of righteousness. How do you handle the opportunity of life that God has given you? Do you ignore his call while the world runs headlong into corruption? You and I must be committed to taking hold of earthly responsibilities of multiplication and dominion. The world awaits deliverance from the mastery of sin. And God has called you and me to, to be ambassadors, to be agents of reconciliation. Not by what we have done, but by pointing people to what Christ has done. By taking the gospel in word and deed. God's call to Noah to live responsibly as the image of God is our call too. And we do that every day in the big things and the little things by being agents of that reconciliation where we live, our neighborhoods, where we work, our job or our home, and where we play. In conclusion, you can ask yourself during, during this last song that we'll sing or maybe sometime today or maybe ask each other at the, the lunch table a couple of questions. Because here's how you get at it in your life. What are the most stable things in your life? How do these order, orderly realities provide you with an opportunity for a meaningful life? 
That may be things you take for granted every day. A stable family, or a stable job, or a nice home, or whatever it is. The question would be, how do these daily realities provide you with a huge opportunity for a meaningful life, to have a meaningful impact as a steward of righteousness? Secondly, name two ways in which you neglect your earthly responsibilities. It can be a big thing or it can be a small thing, but just a couple of things which you neglect your earthly responsibilities and then ask yourself this follow-up question. What would happen if all Christians did that? See, it's the little things. It's obedience in the little things. It's, hey, build an ark. It's, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Bring the, work, the gospel in word and deed to bear on your day-to-day realities and watch God change the world through us and through our faithfulness. Let's pray that he would do that this morning. God, thank you for the, the huge significance, the huge task that you called us to, to be stewards of righteousness, to take your glory, your goodness, and to bring it to bear on every area of our lives. There is not an inch of this world in which you, Jesus, have not said, this is mine. So we can go forth in boldness uh, and in hope and expectation to see you show up and bring change, gospel change, as we, as we share the gospel in word and in deed. God, give us the strength to be faithful stewards of righteousness as we, we trust and rest in you, as we point people to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand. We'll sing the closing hymn, You Alone Can Rescue. It's printed there in